We're journeying through John on Sunday mornings. We are chapter 19. Where over the last four weeks we have been considering the crucifixion of our Lord. Last week we considered Jesus' seamless coat. With Jesus now on the cross, the Roman soldiers take Jesus' clothes and they divide them among themselves When they would come to garments, they would divide those up so that everybody left with something. However, they come to the seamless coat and they see how unique it is and they don't divide it. But they said among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And in so doing, they unknowingly fulfilled Psalm 22, 18. Now I believe this event is recorded for us in John to draw our attention symbolically to two major events which were taking place that day, and that was the bringing in of the kingdom and an unchangeable priesthood. We considered how the kingdom of Israel was rent in two after Solomon's reign in life, though it was for the sins of Solomon that God was going to do this. God waited till after Solomon had died, and the prophet Ahijah caught Jeroboam by his new garment, and he rent it in twelve pieces, saying, God is going to rent the kingdom in two. And Caiaphas, the high priest in Jesus' day, Jesus is on trial. Caiaphas believes he's guilty of blasphemy and he rents his clothes and maybe he had on his high priestly garments, maybe he didn't, but the picture still remains the same, that it was picturing for us the end of the old Levitical priesthood. And so in those two events, we see a kingdom being divided by the rending of a garment, pictured that way. We see a high priesthood coming to an end by the rending of the garments. And when the soldiers look at Jesus' seamless garment, they can't bring themselves to rend it. And I believe we have pictured Jesus' kingdom will never be divided. Amen. Amen. And in Christ, we find our high priest. It's an everlasting priesthood that will never change. Remember, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king and he was a priest. Jesus is our king of kings and he's our great high priest. And truly it's been fulfilled. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. For today, let's begin reading in John chapter 19. We'll read once again verses 16 through 30. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things which were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And so as we've been going through John's account, we've been pulling details from the other gospel accounts as well to get the big picture of what all is taking place while Jesus is on the cross. And I want to do so again this morning. We've preached one message already from Luke 23, but if you would turn to Luke 23, please. Let's consider what is taking place in between verses 24 and 25 of John chapter 19. And we'll find in Luke 23, I'll begin in verse 32, this event that we're going to talk about this morning. Luke 23, 32 says, And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. The people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, let's get this pictured in our minds where we're at and get zeroed in on this here. Jesus has been rushed through this mockery of a trial. He, the religious Jews bring him before Pilate because they no longer have the authority to put a man to death and they need the Romans to do that. They send him before Pilate. Pilate finds them innocent. Pilate sends him to Herod, who's in town for the Passover week. He finds him innocent. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate finds him innocent again. And Pilate decides to scourge an innocent man. And he does so in hopes of pleasing the crowd. I've preached all this in the past. And instead of pleasing the crowd, they called for his crucifixion. And then they lay upon him a cross to bear, that he might carry it up to the place of the skull. And there at Golgotha, they lay Jesus upon His cross and they nail Him to the cross and then they raise Him up for Him to die. Now what's hard for me to understand is here's a man that's, that's innocent and he's been proven so and he's been scourged, he's a bloody mess, he's nailed to a cross, he's suffocating there, struggling for air 
But it just wasn't enough. These religious rulers still have to come by and they have to deride a man who's dying. Isn't that terrible? They, they're still mocking him and we'll see in a minute, the Roman soldiers are even mocking him and they're the ones that took a crown of thorns and mashed it into his head and they beat him. They bowed before him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And yet it still wasn't enough. They just had to keep adding insult to injury. And they had to keep on with their mocking of Jesus. Listen, I know I've said this several times through this particular segment of messages, but this is what man looks like without God. Totally depraved. That's us. That's what we would be saying if we were there that day without Christ. No care in their heart. Gambling at the feet of a dying man for his clothes. The chief priest walking up saying, He saved others himself he cannot save. Look at what they say to Jesus again in verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. I'd like to give you a Matthew and Mark's account as well. Matthew says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Then in Mark it records, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, All oh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. What disdain people have who hate the Lord. How heartless to go by the, the side of a man who's dying and mock him further. They know deep down in, in their hearts that he's innocent, that he's done nothing worthy of death, and yet they take it upon himself to mock him. And they're mocking none other than God in the flesh. This is our treatment of God. And the one who's on the cross being mocked is dying for the very sins that they're committing. Mercy. What a Savior. Jesus looked upon us and realized all the filthiness that we are and all the wretchedness that we are and all the sin that we're capable of and all the sin that we've committed even in our heart. And he says, I still love him and I still want to die for him. Isn't that something? They gather around our Lord and they begin to mock. Psalm 22, 12 and 13 says, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. From that same psalm in verses 16 and 17 we read, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They look and stare upon me. Now, I don't know about you, but I get the picture of a pack of hyenas. 
surround their prey and pick off some animal and begin to bite at it till it finally dies. Even today, evil men are still trying to surround and tear apart our Lord. Just observe what happens when you tell a pack of sinners that their only hope is in God. Tell them the greatest story that's ever been known to man, that Christ would come and die for their sins, that they could be reconciled to God, and tell them of the wisdom of God's salvation, and you'll see the hatred mankind has for God's love. Tell them of God's holiness and their sinfulness, and see how much they like that. Tell them how all of their righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Tell them how God has made a way for whosoever will to be forgiven. And that God made that way when He poured His wrath out upon His only begotten Son. Explain how if they reject Christ and His free gift of salvation, what will happen to them when they die? That they will experience the wrath of God in a place called hell. Now we thank God for everyone that receives Christ. Amen. Amen. But what happens when you give that message? What are many going to do? Well, many are going to do what you may have done in your lost condition. And they'll begin to surround Jesus and they'll begin to tear apart His doctrines piece by piece. And they'll give you reasons why they don't believe in God. They'll tell you why there is no God. They'll tell you how arrogant you are to suggest that there's only one way to come to God. They'll scorn the notion that since God is holy, those who remain in their sin against Him deserve to be punished. And they'll talk of how intolerant it would be for a loving God to refuse any. And they will speak of your pride and how you think you know something they don't know. And it always ends with, who are you to judge me? Christ is still being railed on. And those who don't know their loss are the ones that don't want to hear it. Tell a religious man that his righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What's the problem? He doesn't know he's lost. I can say that in an independent Baptist church full of believers and all of you would say, Amen, that's right. I go and preach that in the Catholic church and we'll see what the response is. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Your works are of no value when it comes to your eternal standing with God. And you watch as the hyenas begin to surround our Lord Jesus. And I want you to understand something, that as these men come to the cross and they begin to mock Jesus, these are not ignorant men. These are very educated men. These are very religious men. They are very pious. They, They lived clean lives. They had doctrine. They had some understanding. They Listen, they probably had way more of the Word of God memorized than you ever will. You know, it was challenged to them to memorize the first five books. These were not ignorant people. They understood that Jesus was good. What do they say? He saved others. Well, then he must have went about doing good if he was saving others. Right? They had doctrine. They understood Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. They said, if thou be the Son of God. 
They knew what the message was. They understood that if that was true, then that would have made Jesus the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah was going to be a king. They understood all of this. And they said, let Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They understood. If you really are who you are claiming to be, prove it. And then we'll believe. Listen, I want you to get this. They weren't saying that they weren't interested in a Messiah. They just weren't interested in this Messiah. They couldn't see how in the world Jesus was the Christ, the King. Why would they need Him to die for them? They're pretty good people. It didn't make sense in their minds. And even Isaiah asked over in Isaiah 53.1, Who hath believed our report? It doesn't make sense. His life for mine. How could it be? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? It still doesn't make sense to the carnal man. In man's religion, you need to work your way to God. Or you need to be baptized. Or you need to do enough good and hope that it outweighs the bad. Who would believe this? That it could be so easy. So they asked for a sign. Right? We, we need some kind of proof here. We need a sign. Never mind the fact that Jesus had been going around for three and a half years, healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, healing the crippled, even raising the dead. They saw Lazarus alive. They wanted to kill Lazarus because he was proved Jesus had <laughs> resurrected him from the dead. They knew. They had the signs. But here they are saying, uh, give us a sign. You know, the Jews were always interested in signs. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For the Jews require a sign. A group of scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus one day and they said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. <laughs> I'll give you a sign. You want a sign so bad? I'm going to give you a sign. I'm only going to give you one sign. And this sign is going to be, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <laughs> you want a sign? The sign is, after you bury me, I'm going to rise again the third day. Amen. That's your sign. I don't want that sign, Lord. I want a sign that I want. Isn't that how we are today? Lord, you come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Jesus said, that's not the sign I'm going to give you. That might be the sign you want, but the sign I'm going to give you is an empty tomb. And if you happen to be here today and you're one who is saying, boy, I'm still waiting on my sign, look no further than the empty grave. The problem is, people want Jesus to do what they want in their timing. And I'm sure in some degree or another, most of us have been guilty of this at some point or another, even as children of God. Amen. I can answer to the affirmative on that. The Lord said, I'm not interested in your timing. That's a whole other message, but they want it their way. 
Well, we see in verse 37 that even the Roman soldiers get in on the action. If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Well, and then in verse 39, one of the malefactors gets in on it and he says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. If you're the Christ, save yourself, but while you're at it, save me too. And then I'll believe. What's interesting to me in that statement is that the Jews and the Roman soldiers didn't even see their need to be saved. At least this guy, even though he's saying this out of scorn, at least this guy understands, I'm in a bad position here and I need help. Right? But what do we find? That's not enough to be saved. So if you're going to save yourself, save me. I'll believe you. I'll serve you then. And sadly, there's many like this today. We've all heard the testimonies, and I've got to tell you, some of the testimonies I've heard are absolutely heart-wrenching. When you have to hear of a grown adult who has to go back in their mind to their childhood and revisit that abuse they endured, and they said, man, when I was a child, I cried out for God to get me out of it, and He didn't, and I don't believe there's a God. Well, that breaks my heart. Because I know they, they mean what they're feeling. But you know... There's a lot of circumstances people do that in, and they're not nearly as dramatic. Lord, if you'll do this, I'll serve you. The same tactic is used. The problem is people aren't looking for a Savior that they can worship and bow down to. But they're simply looking for their station in life to improve. Get me out of this abusive relationship. Get me out of this financial struggle. Get me out of this position. I promise I'll be faithful to church from then on out. What happens when God doesn't do what you want Him to? You see, what people really want is they just want a God that they can rub the the lamp and get a genie to pop out and answer their wishes. God's not going to be your lucky rabbit's foot. Wasn't too lucky for the rabbit either. Let that sink in. And what happens when God doesn't do what we want Him to do, we conclude, we being people that conclude this because this isn't going to fit most of you but we conclude God's not real if God was real and if God was loving then he would have came running to my rescue he would have improved my circumstance and what happens to these kind of folks is they get very bitter and then as they age they get angry and they're miserable people to be around always mad always angry at God Why? Because God didn't do what I wanted Him to. What they tried to do was take the Christ of the cross and turn Him into the God of all they want. Well, these religious Jews, they mock Jesus. The Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus. This one malefactor is mocking Jesus. But how sweet we have recorded for us this amazing conversion. This salvation experience here is absolutely amazing. I love it. And as I was studying it this week, I was just thankful for all that God was showing. Let's read verses 39 through 43 again. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, 
Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. While Jesus is being mocked by this mob, by so many, we find that this man has taken special notice of what Jesus has done. What he has been through, what he has experienced. He's listened to what's been said. He's watched all these events unfold. He can hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's watched as Jesus is being reviled, and yet he reviles not in return. He sees the character of this man beside him. And somehow through this, the light begins to come on. Maybe he had been trained up in the way that he should go as a child. Maybe he remembers lessons from Sabbath school. Maybe he, he realizes it begins to dawn on him from his upbringing and the religion that he was raised in that this one they call the King of the Jews is actually the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows, types, pictures, all those sacrifices that this is the precious Lamb of God. Somehow he starts to connect all this together. This is an amazing turn of events this day at Calvary. Two thieves, one on each side of Jesus. One sees a contradiction, one sees a confirmation. How can this be? How can two people be watching the same events, hearing the same message, and come to two totally different conclusions? How can that be? How is it that a preacher can get up in the pulpit and preach God's Word and somebody over here gets saved and three others walk out lost? How can that be? Same message, same preacher. How sad. One man has a hard heart towards Christ, the other is tender-hearted. I don't understand how some people can hear the same message and they can shake my hand and say, great message. And then I can get a phone call and get chewed out for the exact same message. It happens. I will tell you something funny that happened after the first service. I, I said that, and then Lander meet, met me at the, the door and he said, I just want to tell you what a good sermon that was. And I'm going to call you later and chew you out for it. <laughs> Ah, I cracked up. I said, now that would be different. I never had the same person do it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's good. So how can these things be? Well, I do not know. I have to say, like the hymn writer Daniel Whittle said in 1883, I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin. I don't understand why some of you could care less right now to hear what's being said. I don't understand why others of you are paying attention. I don't understand that. I can tell you for me in that song, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me He hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for His own. I know not how this saving faith to me He did impart, nor how believing in His Word wrought peace within my heart. But here's what I do know. But I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed 
to him against that day. Amen. Both of these men, they had the same need. They were in the same position. One is getting it, the other is not. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that one of these men, they, they look at their situation and they say, Lord, if you're going to save yourself, save me. Get me off the cross. This other guy says, Lord, I'm not even interested in getting off the cross. Would you just forgive me of my sins? Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing him. Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He understood that he had a more pressing need than his physical life. Let's take some notes quickly here of some things about this man, and then we'll close. The Apostle Paul says, finally, and then he writes three more chapters. Amen. (laughs) He says to the other thief who had just railed on Jesus in verse 40, Dost not thou fear God? What does the Bible say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge for that matter. He says it both. Dost not thou fear God? What does the Bible say about uh, our sins? Listen to what he says here. Verse 41, we receive the due reward of our deeds. You know what he's doing? He's taking personal responsibility for his sinfulness. He admits he's a guilty sinner. At the end of verse 41, he admits that Jesus was sinless. But this man has done nothing amiss. I'd say he's off to a pretty good start, amen? These are pretty good fundamentals to grasp on your way to salvation. He's got it down. There's a God and He's holy. We are sinners and we deserve our punishment. But this man is dying for sins he didn't commit. And through faith in Christ, the grace of God becomes very real to this man. And he turns to Jesus in verse 42 and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Would you notice he addresses Jesus as Lord. He understands that Jesus is the supreme authority, that He is Master. He also recognizes Jesus as a King. Remember me when thou enterest thy kingdom. He sees Jesus as both His Lord and King, and He also believed there was nothing He could do to save Himself. And so He asked Jesus all that He could do. Remember me. Remember me when thou enterest thy kingdom. You say, well, that's not the prayer they taught me to pray. (laughs) You better get the rote prayers out of your mind. God sees the heart. This man may not have had the most doctrinal sound prayer you can think of, but it was a salvation prayer. Lord, you remember me when you enter thy kingdom. Well, he understands the basics, doesn't he? Fear God. That's where it all starts. He understood the nature of Jesus, that He was Lord and King. He understood the nature of man and sin, that we deserve this justly. He understood that Christ was dying for sinners. He understood Christ was going to rise again. When you're on the cross, you're going to die. Lord, remember me when Thou... He knew He was going to rise. He understood by faith. He could be with Jesus. He believed in Jesus' kingdom. 
And he apparently believed that there would be some space for mercy. This is absolutely amazing. This man all of a sudden has some good theology. He understands Christology and anthropology and hemartiology and soteriology and eschatology and ecclesiology. Are you impressed? I couldn't rattle those off without reading them, amen. I use that to make you think you're getting your money's worth. I have no idea what they mean, and neither do you. (laughs) Boy, it makes you sound smart, though, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Boy, he's got some things down. Really, it's just a fancy way to say he knew the fundamentals. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, well, if you can find a way to be baptized first, we'll consider it. Jesus doesn't say, if you can find a way to get off the cross and do at least one good deed, we'll consider it. In this man's salvation, we find that our salvation has nothing to do with anything we can do. Amen. Jesus said, this is the work you need to do. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. Have faith. Jesus says, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. Now, aren't you glad that the moment we turn our hearts to Christ, He saves us? I am. I was saved at a youth rally conference, a week-long conference in Jekyll Island, Georgia, in June of 1990, and I can tell you, in a crowd of about 3,000 people, when the invitation was given and I started to make my way forward, I knew before I got there and prayed the prayer that I was saved. I could feel it. Oh, you shouldn't trust your emotions. Listen, if God can't move up inside of your heart and you not know it, something's wrong. You say, is it that easy? Yes, it's that easy. How do you know it's so easy? Because that's how it happened to me. And I know that I know. So how wonderful is this account? We have one group over here. They knew about Jesus. They had doctrine. He did good. They claimed to be the Son of God. He thought He was a king. They had doctrine. They understood the message, but they weren't connecting at all. And then we have this man over here who may be the very first person that actually put it all together in his totality. I have no doubt that the disciples were saved, but let's face it, they had some messed up things. Only John came back to the cross. And what I'm trying to say to you is this. You may have doctrine. You may have been in church long enough and you say, yeah, I know Jesus is the Son of God. I, I know that He's a King of a kingdom. I know He died on a cross. But that doesn't mean you know God. Then you can be like this other man who, just, Lord, remember me. What group are you in? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? I want to ask you this morning, are you saved? What are you going to say when you stand before God? God, you know I did my best. I tried really hard. I came to church when my parents made me. I mean, I was in church. Lord, my my dad was a pastor. That's got to count for something. I live with y'all, and I know that doesn't count for something. You know, I I really did try. Or will you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
Have you had your sins washed away? Do you know what it's like to plunge in the fountain of the blood of Christ? Listen, we have to get beyond our self-needs. We have to get beyond this idea, God, if you'll get me in a better situation, I'll believe you. I'll serve you better. I'll do this. and I'll do... We have to get beyond that. We have to say, Lord, I am a sinner who deserves your wrath. Would you just remember me? Just save me. We have to go to God to be rescued from our sinfulness, not our situation. Let's pray.